The answer is 2023. What's the question? When are things going to get worse before they get better? Well, Ooh. that is pretty. That, we'll give that one because I think that's a the point. question was which year is going to be even more shit than 2022? Oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were on the right lines. <laughs> You're listening to The Occupational Philosophers with Simon Banks and John Rice. Hey, 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 welcome to another episode of The Occupational Philosophers, the not-so-serious business podcast to spark creativity, curiosity, and imagination, where myself, Simon Banks, and John Rice join you each and every week. And, John, I'm going to cut straight to you. What's caught your curious eye this week? Well, Simon, I'm rather excited to share the fact that I've been to my first philosophy festival. So, what with us being the Occupational Philosophers on a real mission to bring philosophy and that kind of thought into organisations, I went to a thing called How the Light Gets In. And this is a philosophy of music festival it builds itself as. And there's one in Wales, but I went to the smaller one in London just a couple of weeks ago and had my brain stretched over two days, I have to say, listening to, and here we go, here's a rundown, some of the things I attended in different tents, The Seduction of Thought which involved play, flow, and mindfulness, trading with the enemy, metaphors as communication, spiritual awakening and Taoism, the happiness delusion. And uh, a very practical one right at the end there was how to write a speech that would change the world. Interestingly, that was delivered by Liz Truss. So uh, all in all, (laughs) all all in all, (laughs) it was an awesome experience, I have to say, but I did feel slightly out of my depth at times thinking, oh, gosh, these people are thinking about big stuff here. I'm going to have to I'm going to have to lean in. But yeah, so that was amazing. So um, I'll keep you posted. I'll see if I can uh, get in touch with anyone who was at the festival and see if they might sort of come play. How about you, Simon? Well, point first, like being out of depth is good because if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room, well, John. So I think that was a ideal. Truthfully, was Liz Trust the <laughs> the uh, okay? <laughs> you said it was such a deadpan face. I wasn't sure if. Uh... <laughs> no, and no, no. thirdly, my last question is: What was the one where you went, "Holy crap, Batman!" That sort of blew my mind the most, maybe. Oh gosh. Well, I was really taken by one of the early ones, that seduction of thought, because they went into flow, play and mindfulness. And of course, that's something we've talked about a lot on this show, particularly the play and flow. It kept on coming back as a topic where people were finding both creative thought and philosophical thought, where they get lost in reverie off on some train of thought. So yeah, that was uh, that was an interesting one. But how to write a speech that changes the world was just brilliantly practical. So I really enjoyed that one as well. That was the guy, that, that it wasn't Liz Truss, it was actually the chap who used to be the speechwriter <laughs> for Tony Blair. So he was okay. sharp as anything. Uh, so very interesting. And where did the music fit in? Was that sort of, okay, the speeches are over, uh, let's party? Yeah, well, thing, there was or? a bit of that, but it was all kind of sort of folksy and guitar okay. violin-y, and I, I didn't really like that. All right, okay, okay. It's not, right, okay. let's put it this way, Simon, it's, it's not the festival we're used to. Okay, sure. Well, you know, crossover. I like, I like the sound of any of all of those things. Oh, that sounds awesome. It was, it was, it was really, really good. So I'm going to, I'm going to check out the, the bigger thing in Wales. I think it's like 
Ross on Wire, Hay on Wire, somewhere like that, sometime in May. So uh, yeah, check it out. We'll put the uh, nice. we'll put the details in the show notes as well, so people can dip in and have a look. How about you, Simon? What's got my eye is British artist Sam Cox, who has doodled his whole house, and he's called Mr. Doodle. But his whole house, a mansion that he's uh, done, it's almost like a Keith Herring uh, uh, yeah. artwork. So, but literally everything in the house is doodled in this black and white pop art type of graffiti. Not graffiti, it's probably yeah, sort of a pop art. Yeah, Keith Herring's the best one yeah, yeah. too. But um, there's not like the bath, the plates, the table. There is nowhere for your eye to rest <laughs> in the whole house so there's not one blank space and it took him 900 litres of paint 401 cans of spray paint 286 bottles of black drawing paint and 2296 sharpies to complete the project in the 12 rooms of the house it's like a mansion it's no small thing it's not like a a one bedroom flat and you know islington it's a big badass mansion yeah so there you go that's caught my eye and just the the sheer capacity of him to do that for uh, two years, yeah, very impressive, Mister Doodle. And again, Mr. we'll Doodle. put that in the show notes. Yeah, I'm just uh, worth checking out. Yeah, I'm just thinking what that's going to be like for the estate agent when they try to describe that when he comes to sell it. <laughs> Interesting decor. <laughs> Somebody's gone beyond Magnolia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, John. <clears throat> Speaking of all those things, interesting decor, beyond Magnolia, we have a guest this week. Who is a curious cat that we have on our show? Well, Simon, I'm genuinely excited today because I think today's guest in many ways embodies much of what we're about in terms of our original ideas about occupational philosophers. So today's guest is the founder of a unique and highly influential organisation in education across the UK called Independent Thinking, and that was set up in 1994. Independent thinking that seeks to go beyond teaching and learning. It goes into motivation and creativity, uh, leadership, social justice, neuroscience, inclusion, environment, well-being. So the span of it is is vast. And it's a platform for a lot of the UK's leading innovative educators, as we'll be called, school leaders as well. And I like this, serving as a lighthouse for practitioners who might otherwise pray, uh, fall prey to the idea that silence is respect obedience is behaviour, grades measure education, and teaching and learning are the same thing. The core principles remain the same throughout all that time, and that's when you change people's thinking, you change lives. Our guest is also a prolific author, many books, including, and I'm holding one up now, the ever ever popular collection of Thunks. There's about three books there, the complete book of Thunks, the little book and the big book, and they are a firm favourite in our household. And why do I need a teacher when I've got Google? He's committed to uh, ongoing classroom work with children and young people, delivers keynotes, TEDx talks, workshops and conferences around the world. His continuous work with teachers and leaders in schools is showing educators there's genuinely a different way at coming of this. He still leads from the front. He sets the bar when it comes to speaking to teachers, children and school teachers about his vision for education. And and this is another favourite part. And unless someone is complaining that their brain hurts, he knows he hasn't got the message across yet. (laughs) I'm almost exhausted reading out such a wonderful introduction. But welcome, the Grandmaster Thunk. Ian Gilbert. 
Oh, hey, thank you for that. I love an introduction that says, uh, talking of Magnolia, let me introduce our guest. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, oh, uh, the, the context was Magnolia busting. That was the... Uh, <laughs> that was the uh, it's funny, I was just trying to... One of my favourites was the man who put the hunk in thunk. I've only had that once, but it's... <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> oh, John, don't you wish you had a thought of that? So, yeah. <laughs> Now, Ian, what's caught your curious eye this week? Uh, it's, it's, uh, I'm sitting here, I'm uh, sort of staring out the window thinking what has caught my eye and what I'm, what's catching my eye at the moment. I'm just taking a photo of it, which I'll send to you, you can post it, is the sun coming up, catching the autumn leaves on a big chestnut tree and a beech tree outside my house. And it resonates with, I did a, a sort of online webinar last week with a brilliant marketing company called Exposure Ninja. They do a lot of free stuff, free webinars. And I was, it was a webinar about recession-proof marketing. So I was having a listen to that. And, and one of the things that came across was he was saying, but you've got to stay positive. It's not rainbows and unicorns, but you've got to stay positive. There's all sorts of rubbish going on in the world. There's all sorts of things that it's going to get worse before it gets better. But that's not what people want to hear. And one of the things he said, you know, the sun still will always rise. And I think it's that sense of Looking around, looking at what's going on, certainly in the last few days or a few hours. I haven't checked. I haven't checked my. Um, I haven't checked my, my phone recently. We might have a different prime minister or chancellor by now. I don't know. I'm not sure whose turn it is. I'm not sure. Alphabetical. I've got no idea now. I think. Um, I think you're up next, next Ian. Uh, is it me? Is it? Oh right. Yeah, okay. I think it's you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll have to put a tie on uh, for the first time for thirty <laughs> years. But that's just that sense of uh, let's just stay stay positive. There's, you, it's easy to be negative, but let's stay. But the sun will always rise. And here's me looking out the window at this beautiful. Uh, the sun's behind the house, so it's catching the the light. And this chestnut tree is sort of gold and orange and and yellow. And it's just like okay, so it, that tree's been there longer than I have, and it'll be there longer than I will be, and things will be okay. I think that's that's what's caught my eye at the moment. That's lovely. We could almost finish there and leave that as a nice bite-sized <laughs> yeah, sort of moment of, in, of inspiration and joy for people. That was lovely. Thank you, Ian. Um, okay. Where are you? You're looking out the window, but where are you in the world today? I'm in West Wales. We've got a place up in the middle of nowhere, sort of between Carmarthen and, and the sea. And it is literally in the middle of nowhere. I've got no neighbours apart from the sheep and the cows. But we're, So I'm partly here, but also my wife is a school principal in Rotterdam. So I'd go backwards and forwards between Rotterdam and Wales. For My work is UK-based mainly, but, they, but home is at the moment is Rotterdam. So, and that's a very different view to look out over. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Now, hearing all these different things when John introduced you, how would you describe what you do? And the follow-up question is, what are your intersections if there are three or four things crossing over and you sit in the middle? I think increasingly I'm... I want to be seen as a writer. That's what I want to do. So if there's a legacy to be had, it's in the written form rather than in the, as a speaker or as an entrepreneur. Because I do, I set up independent thinking nearly 30 years ago and I, I never wanted to be an entrepreneur, never intended to run a business, but I, I'd gone into education. I was a French teacher. I did a French degree. So I'd gone into education because I wanted to work with kids on thinking and learning and memory and motivation and creativity and mind mapping and all of those sorts of things. And French teaching was just a way of paying the mortgage, if you like. I remember my mother-in-law at the time, she was quite scathing that I had a degree, but wasn't really up for much. You're not a doctor or a plumber or anything useful. Hmm. Um, so it was okay. I'll train to be a French teacher, but it allowed me to, even in my first year as a French teacher, I was doing these extracurricular sort of lunchtime classes, after school classes, or 
We did one called the Think Tank. We were doing philosophy for children. We'd perhaps come back to that. We're doing all sorts of things. And then one of my colleagues in the staff room, she liked what I was doing. She said, well, my husband's sold his business. We've got some money to invest. We'd like to lend you you know, £20,000 to set up as a company, if that's what you'd like to do, to do more of this stuff. We think you've got real potential. And it was like, well, well one, I, I'd never thought of it as a company before. I just wanted to work with kids and make their brains hurt. <laughs> uh, but then also it's like when somebody offers you an opportunity, the only way to decide whether you should take it or not is to do, I mean, various people call it the deathbed test or the end of life. You, you look back, you go forward in your head, and then you look back, do I wish... I would have taken this, regardless of what happens. You don't, you can't decide whether it's going to be success or failure, but do you, will you regret not having said yes? And the clear answer to that was, I would definitely regret it. So you, so I went for it and you, you go for it. And that was, yeah, nearly 30 years ago. So that on, so I'm sort of accidental entrepreneur. And I'm, and I think if I was better at being an entrepreneur, independent thinking wouldn't have survived. I think I'd have tried so hard or made it so successful that it would have peaked and then disappeared completely. So I think by not being very good at being an entrepreneur, I can just sort of just keep us going for all this time. We don't, there isn't that sort of product. Well, we do reinvent ourselves, but it's, it's organic. You know, I don't really, anything I've ever planned hasn't happened. I've, I've done a business plan <laughs> once. And that, was just, that was just because the bank manager at the start wanted to sort of, wanted to see something because he felt that's what he should have in his file. But yeah, it it's not the way we work. So I think, yeah, if I'd have been more successful in, as a businessman, I would have, ITL would have failed. Is one way of looking at it. So there's so that business bit, and then there's the sort of speaker bit. And I remember writing prior to that, I was working in advertising up in Newcastle, and I'd done some of the Tony Robbins stuff, and was sort of thinking about goal setting and writing your list of things you want to do and want to want to be. And one of the things I wrote in my little red exercise book, my notebook, and I, and I still have notebooks, and now I've got piles of them now. You know, you, your brain throws off sparks, so you got to capture the sparks you got to you know, it might be or it might be electronically now with your phone but you've got to have something to capture a spark if you're on a train or middle of the night whatever so i'm in my little notebooks i'm writing the things that i want to do i want to be and one of them was you know i'm a i'm doing the present tense these affirmations so i am an internationally recognized thinking skilled speaker working around the world that's what i wrote in over 30 years ago so and it was the speaker bit because they've always been a bit of a you know a bit of an actor you know, I like standing up in front of people and yeah, making them laugh, making the brains hurt, all that sort of stuff. So I've achieved that to a certain extent. I have spoken in various venues around the world and it seems to go down well. I still get nervous. I hate nerves. Nerves are the respect go, of how your go. audience. And it's like, okay, yeah, yeah sure. I can I can live with that, but I do hate it. It's horrible. I thought you were just nervous because so, you were going to Birmingham. <laughs> the last, one of the last speaking jobs I did was Melbourne, and that was a big one at the big conference centre there. So, but I, I, I think regardless of the size, I still get. In fact, the smaller venues are the you get more nervous. Speaking to ten people is more nerve wracking than a thousand people. To be honest, I haven't quite managed. Yeah, you can, you know, hey, Wembley yet? I haven't quite managed you know, multiple <laughs> thousands. But uh, I think my career speaking to it might have peaked at a thousand or so. So, this is speaking bit is what I do. But then what I've always wanted to do is be, you know, be the writer. If you want to put anything on my headstone, it's, you know, along with the, the normal stuff, it's like writer. So the books have always been a part of what I've wanted to do. And this you know, essential motivation was one of my first ones. Why do I need to teach when I've got Google? And then the funk stuff. But then also I'm an editor and a publisher as well through Independent Thinking Press. We've got a deal with a company called Crown House, which are based down the road near Carmarthen. So they published our books for us. So I'm an editor and and a publisher and a ghostwriter as well. So some of our speakers within independent thinking are fantastic speakers with fantastic things to say, but 
putting that into words in a way that's readable in a book is a different thing. So I can, I can write as them, if you like, and, and create a book that they still feel is their book, which is a, that's, that's something I really, I'm really proud of that you can give somebody a book and say, here are your words. This is your voice. And then they take that and, and run with that. So that sort of publishing editing side of it, as well as then me being the writer, but I have just started a master's degree in creative writing at Hull University yeah. because I want to write a proper book. That, that's, <laughs> that's, my, that's, my, that's the thing that's left for me in many ways to write a proper book, which is not an education book. Okay. Define a proper book. So it's not yeah, an education book, that. but it's there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it's going it, to, I think it would have to be, and there's lots of variations on a proper book, but I think it would have to be, you know, the, the, a fully fictional novel. Anything else would be too straightforward to write. That, I, that's not being arrogant, but it, I know where I am with even just the way that I've written the books that I've written. You know, they're all different. They're different from education books. I know how to make a, a non-fiction book work, if you like, on the whole, but actually to embrace a whole story, a whole 80,000 words novel and do it in my way. I think that's, that's what's on my list. And I could probably do it without a creative thinking MA, I think, but it gives you the – lots of people say they want to write a book, but they just don't have the commitment to actually sit down and do it. But when you're doing an MA, you've got to do a certain amount each day, each week. So it's sort of there's a pressure on me there, which is quite useful. Although what I have done off my own bat this year, I've got a thing called the year of writing dangerously. Um, and every day, for, <laughs> every day for 50 minutes, I just write. And I don't know what I'm going to write about until I put the first word down or something comes into my head. I think the last one I did, I'm, I'm a couple of days behind because I've been traveling, but I'll catch up. But the last one, I, for some reason, what was in my head was a wombat looking in a mirror. <laughs> so it was a whole 50-minute conversation about the wombat going, but what am I? You're a kangaroo. People know what you are. What am I? So that, We've had themes of wombats on this show before. So. <laughs> oh, there we go. Yes, the wombats. <laughs> the are, previous are, guest. Their time will come, I think. I have to say as well, the year of writing dangerously, we could take that a different way as well. Is that just you, is that you find a space that's particularly dangerous to write in? Do you sort of hang off a bungee rope or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> Another chapter. <laughs> so Ian, we're always curious as to someone's journey to where they find themselves today. And we kind of often start with the beginnings of school. Are there three words that described you at school? Not good at maths. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, that's four, four words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think if, if another one would be just you know, try, very, try very hard. I was a good boy at school. I, um, I worked very hard. I was a head boy. I, did, I, just, I, I think I missed the opportunity to be a bit naughty to just you know push the envelope a little bit i was just good goody two shoes at school okay well speaking of uh pushing the envelope being a bit naughty is there any people that have inspired you along the way from that time at school through to you know where you are now any particular moments or people on the journey that gave you that different way of looking at the world mr dobbins Mr. Dobbins said, where, where is Mr. Dobbins now? Mr. Dobbins came to, I, after leaving university, did a French degree at Durham University, and then wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, was determined not never to be a teacher. And we were uh, living up in the northeast of England, near Newcastle. And I did this diploma in entrepreneurial management at Durham Business School, end of the 80s. And this guy came talking to us one day about what he called the psychology of success. And we were not sure what this was all about, it was sort, of, sort of crazy American stuff. 
but it was it was mind blowing. It was talking about you know the basic stuff that a lot of people maybe listen to your podcast know about, talking about goal setting and talking about things like multiple intelligences. Talking about if you think you can, you can. It was you know if you want if you want a forty foot yacht, you can have a forty foot yacht. And I remember thinking I'd like a forty foot yacht, and and I I had spent a lot of time you know near the coast. I love the sea, but it never entered my head I could have a yacht. It wasn't like oh, I'd like to have a yacht, but that's not for me. I could never do that. And I hadn't even thought about it. So you suddenly realize, what else hadn't I thought about that I could actually go out and, and achieve? And I realized that I've been, I think two things come into my head from this. This is a quick fire round, but I'll, I'll you know. <laughs> yeah, all good, all good. <laughs> you know, two things came into my head listening to this Mr. Dobbins speak. And one of them is was the what I call the great educational lie. And I've written about this in the Google book. The great educational lie for me is, you know, do well at school and you'll get a good job. And I'm not saying don't do well at school, but there's more to it than just do well at school. You know, I've got loads of qualifications. Everything's going to be great. I remember interviewed James Dyson years ago and saying, you know, if you've got, you've got two students leaving school. One's got loads of qualifications. The other one, nothing. What would be your advice? And he said to, you know, to the one with all the qualifications, he would say, you, you've shown you've got a brain. Now go away and use it. So it's just something. You've got some qualifications, but now the work really starts. And interestingly, he said to the ones without any qualifications, he would say, it doesn't matter. And again, we're not saying learning isn't important, but what we're saying is there's, there, there's other ways of looking at it, if you like. So the great educational lie came into my head whilst listening to Mr. Dobbins all those years ago. And then the other thing that, that I realized was looking back, the secret of my success at school was wait to be told what to do and do it well. So don't think of yourself, no independent thinking, just sit there, be a good boy, do what you're told, do it to the best of your ability, and you'll go far. And in the world of education, I did. But beyond the world of education, thanks to his, his insights, I was realizing as a strategy, that'll get in the way of me achieving what I'm capable of achieving. Because while I'm sitting around waiting to be told what to do, other people are out there doing it. A lot of them are a lot less qualified than I am. So I think that was transformed. And I went back and talked to my wife at the time about it, and um, and she hadn't had she was a nurse she hadn't had that sort of academic route and she just went well yeah duh, it's obvious and it's like well why hadn't anybody told me this when i was at school and that where that was where independent thinking started to go back into schools talking to people about the stuff that i wished i'd known i wish somebody had been talking to me about when i was 16 or 17 so mr dobbins you, is a short answer mr dobbins which i, I love that mm. name i mean i just want to put the magical mr dobbins in front of it and <laughs> <laughs> are you sure are you sure he's yeah. real ian is he real that doesn't <laughs> i thought this was going to a tv character because it sounds like someone out of a show my you know my wife brew grew up in england she go oh, you know mr dobbins we're so i thought oh okay it's a muppet or something anyway it's a real mr dobbins so <laughs> is it <laughs> Building for Mr. Dobbins, though, what about now? I mean, I know with independent thinking and seeing that, I can see all of those, as you say, the practitioners that kind of sort of span across that organisation. Are there people within that and beyond who inspire you now? Who are some of the people who are lighting you up now in the work that you're trying to, to push forward? I mean, I am inspired by all of the independent thinking associates because they're doing such good work and they're such good people, nice people, great, you know, wherever I'm sharing a platform with them, it's always just magical to see them in action. But, and again, forgive me, this is an arrogant thing, but it, there comes a point where you just, I just want to follow my own light rather than looking for others to be inspired. I remember with, again, going back to me as an accidental entrepreneur, there was a sense where I think, oh, well, I just need to read one more book, just read one more article in order to know what to do with independent thinking. And I've got to the point now where I, say, I don't, I don't want to look outside of myself for inspiration. I want to see what I've got. 
And I think that's the stage I'm at. And I say apologies if it comes across as arrogant. It's not meant to be because I know there are amazing people out there. But you've got I've got to look to see what what's inside me that I can bring out. Inspire is you're, you're breathing in and breathing out with inspiration, isn't it? The roots of the roots of the word. But you know what can I bring out of myself is the point I'm at now. Building on that, how do you look inside? Like, how does that process work? Like, how do you dive deeper to see what's there? Oh, that's a good one. You go on that two-day course about letting in the light. The full I mean, where the light comes from. The full quote, isn't it? It's about the it's the cracked ones letting the light. I can't remember who said that originally. I know other, various people have used it. Uh, uh, Ogilvy, the advertising guy, was one of the guys. It's just being happy to spend time with your own head. And seeing where the thoughts goes, capturing the sparks, like I talked about earlier in your notebook, even my, my year of writing dangerously, I've written, I don't know how many days into the year we are, but I've written a lot of words that all came from inside. And I, if I hadn't had that outlet to just, okay, I'm just going to see what comes out and what comes out, you're thinking, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know, I didn't know that was in there. So it's finding a way to let out the stuff that's in there. Um, I mean, it's quite rough, some of it, but it, it's so much of what I've written without knowing where it came from could be turned into a short story or a, there's a phrase in these little short stories that are only like one page long. There's a word for, I can't what it is now, too early in the morning for me to remember something like that. So it's feeding stuff into your brain and then just sort of giving and uh, seeing what comes out and giving an outlet without, you're not sort of judging it all the time. Oh, that's rubbish. Or I shouldn't say that. Or that's not right. Just, just let it out and see what happens. And is that what you call, I guess, riffing on what John, you were saying? Is that when you find your flow, would you say? Like John was speaking about that from the festival, mm. and we speak about it a, a quite a lot. Yeah. Is that I mean, a flow, flow is, state for you? It is really. I mean, 15 minutes isn't very long, but it does go It does go quickly. I mean, flow is the, the original flow stuff is the chick sent me highly stuff around high challenge, low stress. And that's something, I mean, in my essential motivation book, I talk about that's the state we need to get in the classroom where kids go, oh, it's at the time. That's gone quick. So, and it's, high challenge, low stress, not no stress. You've got to have a certain amount of stress. So for the 15 minutes, this is what I say to teachers in the classroom, get motivation rather than saying, here's your task. So here's your task. You've got seven minutes or I want five answers to this question in 10 minutes. So you give a little low stress deadline in order to make it work. So, so with the creativity, with the things like the writing, knowing that I'm ultimately need to be writing for an audience gives enough stress. I can't just write any old rubbish. There still has to be a sense that somebody needs to read this and get something from it. And that's in my education books as well. So the flow is there, I suppose, but it's, it's that, yeah, high challenge, low stress is the, is the best way of describing that from the work of Chick Sent Me Highly. In terms of a more spiritual way, I think the nearest I ever get to flow, uh, I did some sailing for a while and, and you can, in a, in a yacht at sea or even, even just in harbour, I can sit for hours and hours. And if you think I'm just going to sit and stare at something for seven hours, that's going to be boring. But something about being at sea where you can just do that. And that's, that's the sort of the nearest I've come to sort of a spiritual flow. I think where your mind doesn't go wandering off. And I mean, I've tried sort of meditation, but I just, I am quite settled my brain enough to do that. So I'll, I'll, I'll perhaps do that when my brain's empty. <laughs> you said about the sailing there, Ian, and um, I did note there was, you did a trip, was it? something entitled around deeply or something it was an idea that you were going to sail around and i think you said you had scientists on board who were just spotting and labeling things and you'd much have preferred to go with artists and three-year-olds who would just <laughs> observe the world as it is and just take it you know just drink it all in and i just thought 
That was a great realisation. You go, put your white coats away, scientists, and bugger off my ship. <laughs> got, there's, there's better passengers I could have. <laughs> the 40-foot yacht idea, that stayed in my head. And I promised my son that, you know, by the time he was, I think his 10th birthday, you know, we'd have a, a wooden yacht with red sails. That was the romantic notion that I had. But being a bit of an overachiever, I ended up with a 54-foot yacht. <laughs> Uh, and, Not and too then, shabby. Yeah. No. Well, it wasn't it. Thank, uh, thank you. Thank, like, thank you, Mr. Dobbins. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Dobbins. Yeah, that, that was an expensive one. But then it was like, well, I don't even know how to sail. So what am I going to do now? <laughs> so uh, I did a. I got permission. I got a, a, an exit slip for three months and learned how to sail going around the British Isles with a sailing school, uh, which was mind blowing. I mean, we live in this. If you're a Brit, you live in this island, but you don't actually see the the edge, the frame, if you like, of the picture. And it's just stunning when you're out there. So that was the first thing. And then it was like, okay, I want to use the yacht because it was bought it through the company. So for tax purposes, I need to prove that it's a, it's an asset, yeah. not just a, 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 an Ian Gilbert buys a yacht thing. And then it was this idea of around, around deeply. Around deeply was, it came out of two things. So one is, is let's look at something with new eyes. Uh, so let's look at the coast with new eyes. But also came out of a thinking skills tool that I developed called eight-way thinking. So, and I mentioned Mr. Dobbins, and he talked about different sorts of intelligence. So there's a work of Howard Gardner at Harvard who talked about that we have potentially about eight different intelligences rather than saying he's intelligent, she's not intelligent. Let's break it down and think about people who have musical intelligence or interpersonal, intrapersonal, verbal, linguistic, those sorts of things. So and I really loved then and still love. It's, it's, it's had a bit of a sort of a dissing in England, especially because it always oh, about learning styles. It's not about learning styles, never about learning styles. It was just allowing, I mean, the question is a bit of a cliche, but the question in the classroom is not how smart are you, but how are you smart? And when you start putting that question, when you change that mindset, you, you start looking for the smartness in people rather than saying, well, you're not very clever because you can't do the stuff I'm asking you to do in there. French classroom for me or the English classroom or the maths classroom. And I remember standing in a, an office in, we we're living in around Ipswich at the time. So it was in Ipswich looking at this old sort of almost derelict church on a roundabout in the middle of Ipswich. And I'm thinking about this eight, the eight different intelligence. So if I was going to explore this church, to understand more deeply this church using my different intelligences, what would I do? And it was okay. So. So there's a sort of uh, logical mathematical intelligence. So it might be questions around numbers, you know, how old is the church or how many people have been to the church over the years that it's existed. I might, there might be in trap, in personal. How does it make you feel walking into this church? Does walking into a, a derelict church have a different feeling from walking into an actual church? You know, one that's got in it and one that hasn't supposedly, or it might be visual, visual spatial intelligence. What's the design? What's the architecture? Where's the, how was it created? What color is it? What are the colors of it? So you can start asking questions about a thing, whatever it might be. And it could be a church, could be love, could be beer, could be uh, one as we sailed around Britain with around deeply, as it was called. We were, we had a couple of days in Grimsby fish dock number two. So this <laughs> awful, horrible looking place, but suddenly becomes the most interesting place in the world because you're asking questions of it using the different yeah. intelli intelligences, which I called eight way thinking. So around deeply was a project to encourage people just to look at the world and interrogate it in a different way and be more interested in it and be curious. And curiosity, there were sort of similar etymological limits to curate, to look after, to care for. So if you've got people being curious, they might care for it a little bit better. So that was the, that was the idea. And we were supposed to take some artists on board, but in the end it was, it became a little bit too scientific for my liking. 
But uh, and I remember something Sandy Toxvig said years ago on, I think it was on a QI. You know, she was saying, you know, would a poet be better going to the moon than a scientist? Would it, would the poet come back with a better understanding and a better representation of what was what was up there? So I think it was that idea that made me think, you know, maybe more scientists and three year olds. Um, but that was the Around Deeply project, and that was. That was why I ended up uh, in the dock of the VAT court in London trying to argue why I needed a yacht. But uh, I lost that one, but it's okay. I still. Yeah, it's just um, my phone's I... pinging with, uh, from Her Majesty's <laughs> Taxation Services. Saying, They've had all their money. Is this live? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that was an experience as well. I had a friend who I met via the yacht who uh, was a lawyer, so he represented me. So we lost, but we had a few beers. And, and you know, uh, the experience, because I look back and think, well, that was a lot of money, but the experience and the people. You can take those to your grave. The money you, you it comes and goes. So, we in every episode, we like to stretch our minds with what we call thought experiments, which is something philosophers over the ages have done as they wrestle with answers to big questions. Or, as in the case with your thunks, where you've got a question that has no definitive answer. However, We've decided to go another way here. We want to provide you with some definitive answers. You just have to come up with a question. So so let's play Whose Question Is It Anyway? I'll start. So if, I'll give you the answer. I'm only laughing because I, I know the first one. Um, <laughs> right. First one, Ian. I thunk, therefore I was. What is the question? <laughs> I think, therefore, I was. Yeah, what happens when you take a load of words and throw them up in the air? <laughs> That's not right. Sorry, it's, it's, it's not right. But it was a nice. It was a nice attempt. Is the question Good there? Was, what was inscribed on the headstone of Rennie Descartes? <laughs> so close, close. Come on. But, uh, I think, okay. therefore, I am, and he's dead. I thought, therefore, I was. Uh, I think your, your Latin translation probably needs a bit of work. But yeah, okay, I get that. I think that's where I was. Okay, <laughs> the next one. The answer is the James Webb Telescope. What is the question? Where? Do, what gives us an insight into things far beyond what our world has to offer? Close, but the true question was, what has the same focal length as John's glasses? <laughs> so you, you, you know, you're not too far off, but uh, okay, let's try it. Glasses, deep, 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 deep space. They're, they're impressive glasses. Come on, it, saw Ian, them before. You, they were. Yeah, yeah. you're going to have to dig in here, Ian. Come on, you, right, this is a uh, question. You can uh, do sorry, this. Answer yeah, okay, number three. So the next one is a Siberian dwarf pet hamster called Kevin. What is this the is question? A, this is a true animal as well. Called Kevin. Yes, it was that's called Kevin. Important. That one, yeah, that's an important part so of the many, answer. There were so many places I could go to with it, but I didn't know the Kevin one. Uh, <laughs> and and I've, I've also got an image in my head of a Hollywood actor which I can't name. <laughs> uh, I, I don't the know the Kevin one. I really don't know. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, the first first rodent in space. Close. <laughs> it is close. It's a very good guess, but it is who is seen as a potential future Tory leader. <laughs> All right. 
Now, I think, though, they've become a little bit easier for the next few. So we'll, we'll give you a chance to come home with a wet sail as per your uh, boating trip around England. The answer is 2023. What's the question? When are things going to get worse before they get better? Well, Ooh. that is pretty. That, we'll give that one because I think that's a the point. question was, which year is going to be even more shit than 2022? Oh, there we go. <laughs> yeah, we were on the right lines. <laughs> hey. so you're finding your flow. You're finding your group. Yeah. The sun will rise. The sun will rise. That's it. Let's, let's see if we can keep this uh, this going then, Ian. So the next, now, uh, now the next, John, the John, next answer. John. Yeah, what? John wrote that. He's a bit more miserable than I am. So uh, yeah. anyway, <laughs> just want to put that out there. So <laughs> next, okay. uh, yes. Name one of the greatest glam rock supergroups of the seventies. <laughs> I like your thinking. <laughs> but uh, no, unfortunately, that's wrong. The question was: Do baby pandas know they're cute? So close, but no not, cigar. Not bad. Not bad. Okay, <laughs> now our last one. Last one. The answer. The answer is no. Which famous doctor was James Bond's greatest adversary? Close, but not quite. The answer. I mean, the question was: Was it Reverend Green in the library with the lead pipe? And the answer was no. <laughs> but I have to say, I like your one better. We do. Oh, there we, we go. Do. You can have that. <laughs> and there we have our thought experiment. Whose question is it anyway? Ian, you're a really prolific author, and I was genuinely shocked in a positive way how many books you've written. So I just want a, a number answer to start with, and it follows on to a, another question. How many books have you authored or co-authored? Again, this is going to sound awful, but I, I've lost track. <laughs> uh, <in terms> of, <laughs> Point proven. Okay. <laughs> yeah, a, a, a few, because there's also ones that there's like compilation books. So we produced a book a couple of years ago called The Working Class, for example, which is a big, thick book with about 40, nearly 50 different contributors. Um, okay. So I compiled that, edited it, and also then wrote, sort of interleaved my work around 45 other people's work, if you like. So you know, whether that counts as one, but there's also the books that, that I've just written on my own. But there's also books that I've written on my own for children, which are different from the books for teachers. So it's, it's and, and the stuff that I've edited has got my name on it. So there's quite a few. Quite a few, in Australia, we call that shitloads. So, uh, <laughs> is the is the word we have for that? So, uh, uh, a prolific author. Now, I'm going to I'm going to narrow in. I'm niching in. Can you tell us more about your book, Independent Thinking? Because I was reading, you know, about it, and I thought, no, that's a question I need to ask you because that's the crux of so much of the great work you do. Yeah, I was living in Chile at the time. My wife, my second wife. She's originally from Chile. So we'd sort of moved back there for a year. And, and I was, I'd written the Google book in where we were living in Dubai. And it was like, okay, time to write another book. And, and you know, I talked about these capturing these sparks. So I realized I had loads of little aphorisms and more thunks coming through and just, you know, I didn't want to write a whole book, but I had lots of little things that I wanted to say, especially stimulated by living in South America and, and the, the sort of the social. I was just waking up because of my wife to the social angle that was going on, realizing that there was a thing called neoliberalism and that you can live under a dictator and that, that the world is sort of stitched up in all sorts of ways. So there was like an awakening there of my social conscience, which I hadn't had before. 
so I was just sort of capturing lots of different thoughts and then and sort of put just collated them really in the book. And it, in many ways, it's the book I'm most proud of. I was trying to find a copy of it before this interview, but the only one I've got in this house is a, is an Arabic version of it, Arabic language version of it. So I was sort of trying to find the original word documents of the stuff that I'd put down. And again, without being arrogant, you look at stuff that you'd forgotten that you'd written and you go, Oh, actually, that was, that was all right. That I'm quite proud of that. So I think, I think I need to do another marketing push on that book because there's lots of stuff in there that's, that's relevant. But the, I think one of the, the marketing lines we had for it at the time was, you know, these are my thoughts, get your own. So I'm not writing to get people to tell them what to think. I'm saying, here are some thoughts. Here's some independent thinking. Here's some different ways of looking at the world. Here's some provocations, if you like. Here's some thunks. Not for you to copy me, but for you to think, well, actually, I've got permission now to think my own thoughts. And to if these weird thoughts come into my head, that's okay because that's who I am. That's my, That's what's in my head at this moment, which is the conjunction between me and the world and this is what has been sparked by that conjunction and so look building on that piece around that independent thinking does that sort of leverage so much of the work you've done in the education system and on that how what have you seen change in this system maybe since you were at school and you know john and i would have been at schools so what have you yeah how do those two interact the big part of the independent thinking with our work, so capital I, capital T for the company name, with the work we do in schools is saying there is another way. It sort of boils down to that. We're not saying you must do this. We're not producing a system. We're not saying follow our lead or follow our instructions. We're just saying here are a variety of people doing things differently in education. You can also find your own way in education. You don't have to do what they tell you to do, what what the researchers tell you to do. You you can think for yourself. A lot of our work is it's almost giving permission to in the early days it was directly with teachers for the teacher who thinks i'm i'm feeling a bit weird because i'm doing stuff differently it works but i'm i'm feeling a bit out on a limb is that okay and they say yeah because here's other people doing it similarly so you're emboldening people if that's the right word that might be a simpsons word you're emboldening people to be that it feel it's okay to go their own way and then in education in leadership now one of our books we produce is brave heads that it's okay for you to we need you to be brave. We need we need leaders to raise their head above the parapet and, and, and be brave. So it's okay to find your own way and, and to do the thing that you want to do. Encouraging educators to be inventors rather than researchers. There's been a lot of focus at the moment on research-informed teaching and learning. And that's okay. Yeah, look at the research, find out what's going on. And the research talks about you know what works. But actually, it can only really say, I believe, what worked, past tense. It's just, this worked for me in my classroom at this point. That doesn't guarantee that it's going to work for you in your classroom at that point. It doesn't even guarantee it's going to work for me in my classroom tomorrow because there are so many variables. But if we think of the teacher as the inventor, the tinkerer, the constant iterations, the classroom is the laboratory where you try a bit of this and a try a bit of that, and you work with the children and get them involved in this process. We'll try this. We'll try that. Did it work? Did it not work? What did you think? Did you enjoy it, but you learned less? Did you enjoy it less, but learned more? You start to play be more playful in your approach to teaching and learning. And, and I see that in lots of other industries as well, where you, if you have that sort of playful approach where you can, maybe less so in surgery, but that, let's, let's try <laughs> yeah. this and see what happens. <laughs> um, I think that's what I'm encouraging with independent thinking. This, and, and, and just coming back to there is always another way. There is another way. It's not definitive. You, you must do it this way. And then in t- the second part of your question in terms of practice, it, it depends where you look. When I'm abroad, a lot of people talk about British education or the UK education system, but there isn't such a thing because Scotland have been doing their thing 
for a while now. And they look, in many ways, they look more to Scandinavia for their inspiration. And then Wales, they realised they wanted to improve their education. And they looked to Scotland. They got a guy in from Scotland to look at the Welsh education system. And he put forward a number of recommendations, all of which are being adopted or have been adopted by the Welsh education system. So there's a new curriculum for Wales, which is being rolled out across Wales now. It's a, it's a slow process, turning a curriculum around. And also the pandemic didn't help. But it's a, it's a curriculum that, apart from learning stuff, you need to know stuff, but it's also focuses on well-being and supporting other people and elements of sort of entrepreneurship. So it's, it's a, it's a really broad and wide creative curriculum in Wales. In England, ideologically speaking, it, it seems to have gone in the opposite direction. It's, it's been driven, a lot of this coming from America, driven by this sort of knowledge rich idea that if, if you just get the facts, into people, into children. If you get that into them, that's that's enough. And you can't have creativity without knowledge. Therefore, you've, you've got to start with the knowledge. So there's a big ideological rift that's been sort of encouraged by the, well, the, the current government, although it's previous, it, it's a bit like Doctor Who, it keeps regenerating its first iteration, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years ago, where it was this focus on direct transmission, teacher at the front, no group work, no teamwork, learning of stuff, process of education and there's a place for that but there's there's a place for lots of other stuff going on as well especially when you start looking at things like well-being and the impact of well-being of that sort of classroom for children gonna, i was going to say Ian, to that question about the changes we would have seen it is our generation having come through school i suspect i've got the gray hair there but you must be seeing that the wind is in your favor as it were over that 30 years it is happening is it just the question of the pace of change is not fast enough in your mind, but it is happening. Is that would that be true? That you are seeing that change in in approach to this, it, or or not? Or is it still fundamentally a schism? In England, previous so when the when the last Labour government was in, they were developing all sorts of things that made us more mainstream. So they had a thing called personal learning and thinking skills pelts pulse. They had some key people in some of the government quangos, if you like, really driving the sort of education that that would be the sort of education that I would commend in terms of creativity and, and well-being and thinking skills and going beyond just learning stuff. And also there was a, there was a thing called the Rose Review, which was a, uh, looking at the primary school curriculum and made a series of recommendations that we focus around areas of knowledge rather than, that, that, that are interlinked rather than this is English, this is literacy, this is history, this is science. And all of this stuff was ditched almost within the first year, even with, sooner than a year, by the education secretary at the time. So we were almost becoming mainstream and then almost overnight we're sort of flung to the edges again, which I'm okay with. I'd much rather, as independent thinking, work in the edges, work in the cracks, support the you know, I don't want to be mainstream. It's a bit like I was saying earlier, if I'd have been mainstream, I'd have made a lot of money and been successful, but wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. It would have it would have come and gone. The product life cycle would have come and gone. So being flung to the edges where we could be a little bit more be the resistance a little bit more is far better suited to the way independent thinking works. And that's in England. I'm aware, like I said, England, in Scotland and Wales is different. Also because of my experience and living abroad and my kids going through the international baccalaureate, the IB system in international schools, and my wife, you know, she now runs an, inter an IB school, seeing that sort of education, that, I mean, that's marvelous. That's wonderful. I was speaking in Australia recently to a number of the schools there that are IB schools and they're, it's a real opportunity. Yeah, you've still got to learn stuff and the exams are quite hard, but also they talk about theory of knowledge. They can talk about philosophy 
you've got community action and service or creativity action and service, whichever one it is, or you've got to do stuff with your community or somebody's community to, in order to pass your idea at a high level. So there are elements of education globally that sort of fit into the work that I'm doing, but there's also a resistance to it, which, which is fine because then we become the way of, we, we can work in the cracks. Now, with similar conversations in Australia, because we have we have the country, but then we have the states are responsible for the individual school systems, but then the federal government, I think I've got this right, sets curriculum. So there's always this back and forth and different pieces. But this conversation seems to go round and around and around, I find. And it often, you know, I work in the space of creativity, come from back around the arts, so very comfortable in that space. I was the kid who made it through school, not thinking they weren't creative. But so many people I work with leave school, I'd not so much say 95%, thinking they're not, and generally from a comment from a teacher at school, something to do with art or this ridiculous idea. So look, but we keep saying we need and the the way of the future, and I'm on a bit of a rant now, sort of something <laughs> the skills we need in the future are, you know, our creative thinking, problem solving, curiosity, all those things. And which you used to speak about the independent thinking. So look, what's that big is there a big chestnut? That's the big massive piece we need to move first and then the other stuff will follow is there one big thing which just keeps getting stuck time and time again i think it's going to have to be the exams and the exam system if you measure the success of the child or the school based on their exam results mm. then human nature is that you'll that's what you'll focus on and if we're saying that, that if we do you know, refute the premise of the question that exams are not the, the way of measuring somebody's intelligence as in you've got loads of qualifications doesn't mean to say you're intelligent you haven't got any doesn't say you're not intelligent if we start challenging the exam idea and in the google book i talked about where exams come from and they in the old days oxford cambridge they used to talk their way into their degrees they'd have these big debates with the masters looking on from the balcony the one who was the least good at their debate to see whether they would get their degree the wooden spoon was lowered down from the balcony. They had to accept the wooden spoon for being so bad at, uh, at that <laughs> debate process. And then sort of industrial revolution processes like, okay, well, we can actually print, we can get them to write and we can print papers and get them to write it down. So there's the history of the academic exam sort of grew out of that process, if you like. And then there was a big project that was trialed in Devon in the southwest of England where the, where the masters of, I think it was Cambridge, travel down with exams in this sort of sealed box. They were in their gowns and this steam train traveling to the southwest of England to give children these exams to see if that's the way that we can, that we can measure children. So the whole process is, is of its time maybe, but is perhaps a flawed way of looking at things. The, the trouble is there are, uh, you know, we've tried other, other ways of doing things like coursework, but the research there indicates that the child from the middle class parents will do better with coursework because they're getting a bit of extra help, a bit of extra support. Mm. The idea of just looking at putting exams online, which will help. I did some work with a guy called Professor Sugata Mitra. He came into, when we were living in Hong Kong, he came and my wife had him for a week to go into schools around Hong Kong. So I was sort of hosted him, which was amazing. He's the guy Professor Sugata Mitra did the hole in the wall experiment, which is one of the most viewed TED talks with him talking about that. Slumdog Millionaire was inspired by his work where he just put a computer out in the streets in, I can't remember what in Delhi. Uh, yeah, and the kids were just yeah. in, it's almost immediately got themselves online. With, uh, you know, they'd never been to school, didn't speak English. And he was saying that the only way the exam system in its current form can exist is by denying the existence of the internet. We have to pretend 
this stuff's not out there in order to get exams still to work. So the idea mm. beginning to look at putting exams online, but it, that's the tail that's wagging the dog. It's the exam. Now, where okay. do the exams come from? They come from the universities. So if we've got universities that are saying, and, and some are beginning to, we don't, we'll look at exams, but maybe we'll look at other things as well. I remember uh, I was speaking in Singapore a few years ago, and there was a guy, a head teacher from a school in, one of the big international schools in China, I can't remember where it was now, and he was saying they give students the chance, they can either do the IB or they can do something else of equal rigor, mm. but they can do another way of getting into university, and, and that was working successfully. And I always say with businesses as well, you know, if you we could change the education system by, in an interview, when the child comes or the student comes to you or the interviewee comes to you and says, yeah, here are all my qualifications, just by asking the question, great, what else have you got? As soon as you ask the question, what else have you got? It changes what mm. you need in order to be successful going through the school system. So I think that that's the chestnut that we need to move with that, that process of assessing what the child's been up to. And there, we can use it with the internet, with blockchain. We can start putting stuff out there now that says, this is what I've achieved. This is the project that worked. This is the things that I've been doing. These are the, this is the work. This is the paid work I've been doing. You know, I was 16 or 17, but I was designing gardens or designing dresses. Or but one of our associates wrote a book called Forget School, which is full of these kids who just didn't do well at school because it just wasn't right for them. But they discovered their flair, their thing, their passion, their creativity afterwards. And now they're doing these amazing things, but, but tying into the technology as well. I heard you on a recent podcast talk about a vision for 2052 because it chimed nicely with the fact that You've had 30 years with independent thinking almost. So let's project another 30 years into the future. Could you describe then, and maybe that lifts a little of what you've just been saying there, what might education look like in the future? Or maybe what might learning look like in the future if you had your way? Let's give you the magic wand and it can be brought mm -hmm. to fruition. What does it look like in 30 years' time? I think it would have to be a lot more porous. We've still got the model that education is the thing that you do when you're at school, apart from your homework, if you do it. So it's finding the way that we can tap into the what exists now, which is the not when when we were at school, knowledge came from teachers and from books. And now it doesn't have to, it can come from all sorts of places. So it's 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, we can access whatever we need in order to do well. So then it becomes more education becomes less about going somewhere to have somebody's knowledge stuffed into you to and more about how can we address for example real world problems in my community what knowledge do i need where can i get that in order to address real world problems so it becomes more relevant more real more tied into the world there's within ib schools you've got inquiry-based learning or dilemma-based learning is another way of looking at it and and it's inquiry-based learning where you're giving people sort of real world solutions to for which they need the knowledge in order to address mm. is the research shows that it's if you give them a test immediately after that they don't do as well but give them a test further down the line they mm. do better so something that's inquiry based dilemma based where they bring their creativity and their own passions to bear a lot more will be will be part of in a poorer system there's still places that they can go to because we want to be part yeah. of the community we want to belong but it isn't necessarily you come here in order to speak spend an hour with a science teacher learning physics stuff 
Because I presume, I mean, an example of that, you can imagine, might be that as they come to think about a particular problem, they might think about, well, what technology is available? Uh, they might look historically and go, what, what's happened in the past that's led to this situation? So history comes into play. Technology comes into play. They might think, so is that the idea that suddenly it doesn't matter what the disciplines are? It's what it, what's relevant to the moment that you bring together. And as you say, you learn this stuff as you apply yourself to something tangible. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a controversial statement because there are people who are adamant oh, God. that you need to teach, <laughs> teach the disciplines. Even within science, even within the ah. science discipline, there are people who are saying you need to teach science as a whole. And people say, no, you need to teach physics, you need to chemistry, you need to biology, they're separate things. Mm. And then you put them together. So it's there will be people you could get on this podcast who would give mm. all sorts of really good reasons why this areas of, no, areas of understanding, like I talked about with the Rose Review, areas of understanding – or this transdisciplinary work that the IB might do a lot more. There are people who, would, uh, who could give you very good arguments as to why that's not the case. But uh, my view is that we can bring these things. It's a bit like the eight-way thinking, the multiple intelligences. You can, mm. you can look at protest, let's say. Let's look at protest. Rather than just understanding the world, let's look at changing the world. Which means we look at protest. That might be a big idea that you can play with. But within that, you can look at history. You can look at music. You can look at literature. You can look at all sorts. You can look at interpersonal skills. With, you can do all sorts of things within a big picture of protest, for example. We often go into, we're, we're a not-so-serious business podcast, so we like to frame ourselves, and we like to look through the lens of individuals. You know, you might be running your own business at home or you're just listening, so you're not you're sort of listening for yourself, but often how teams work and collaborate together and connect. So I've got a question around team. When we're hearing this sort of maybe, if I got it right, that poorer style of learning and thinking, and you might have these multidisciplinary approaches of looking at a problem, would it be beneficial for teams to load themselves with multi multidisciplinary thinkers or people with niches in certain fields? Or how might teams sort of embrace some of that last bit that you've spoken about? Because I'm hearing some tensions in maybe how people might think, oh, this might be it. Or you might be, you know, they call it the T person. So you've got a, a deep niche and expertise, but you're really curious across the top of some other things. Long question. I hope you got that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> My yeah, apologies. He's, 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 <laughs> just, <laughs> he's just appalling at this, Ian. I tell you what, for, for <laughs> occupational philosophers meant to be guided and thoughtful around the questions. Simon's unbelievable. <laughs> They're like it's all right. three I, pages long. I got my answer at the beginning and then stopped listening, so it's fine. <laughs> in fact, I did notice he went off to make a cup of tea, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now um, you're back. <laughs> there, there is research that shows that, the, that if you've got a group of experts, they come up with ideas that are less worthy than if you've got this mixed group. Like so, I do. This is back to like I said around around deeply. We have the scientists, but let's have the artists and the four year olds as well. Yeah. So yeah. for me, that variety of thinking around a question is really important, especially from a business point of view. If you're bringing in clients or bringing in uh, people who are part of the chain that you're working with as well, rather than just having your own your own group of people thinking your own thing, because you've also got within business, you've got if the boss is in the room, you might think in a different way than if the boss isn't in the room. One of the things within philosophy for children which is where a lot of the thunks started and i'm aware we've talked about thunks but i haven't actually given an example of one yet but i'll let you come to that yeah. as and when but one of the key parts of the philosophy for children movement is creating this community of inquiry so you're sitting in a circle and the teacher can be part of the circle but the teacher isn't 
isn't the teacher. They're not the lead. They're just part of the community of inquiry. So everybody is of an equal in this way. And then there's a set process of, of where you give them a stimulus. Uh, you sort of read around the room with the stimulus and then you're asking, you're eliciting questions. So every child has a chance to ask one or two questions. You put the questions up on the flip chart of the board and okay, which question should we go with first? So it's a very egalitarian, democratic way of starting to look philosophically, look deeply, look creatively at a particular stimulus, an issue, which might be a business question, it might be a product, or it could be a bit of literature, if you like. So I think there's there's two aspects to that in terms of teams and business. One is, is the egalitarian community of inquiry where we're all being curious together and there's no hierarchy, I think is really important. And then the other one is this this mixture, uh, which is a far, I think is a far richer way of, of doing things than, than just everybody who has the same discipline. And I say the research back setup as well. All got the, if you've all got the same discipline, you will not think as creatively and effectively as if you've got a variety of disciplines. It's interesting there as well, uh, Ian, that uh, much is obviously talked about around diversity and diversity and inclusion would be talked about in the organisations we work with. But it's never framed as diversity of thought. It's framed in, in different <laughs> ways. And you go, actually, there's a real opportunity there to, as you say, to be able to draw that in and be consciously thinking of that as you bring teams together yeah. to solve, as we might say, gnarly complex problems. But uh, yeah, it often gets missed. But we still think in terms of clever as a, as a zero something, you've either got it or you haven't got it. We need the clever people in the room. The clever, oh, they're the ones who've been to university, they've got the qualifications. But let's, we don't want to go, we we, don't want to go too far, of course. Tony's going to solve this problem. Tony, just, just do a dance and see if we can solve this problem now. <laughs> <laughs> Inter interpret it through the medium of... Of mime, <laughs> you'd you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised what what such things can stimulate. <laughs> no, I I, I I wholly agree. And look, we we congregate with people who think alike to us as a rule, and that gives us that certain. And look, we you know John and I would do it. That's why we're creating the podcast because we you know we have similar interests. So it's great to have people who are that that person just because of whatever it is they just see things differently to you, which is fantastic. And in that middle spot there is where we have that, which is that I always say the uh, between strongly opposing uh, views is probably that innovation sweet spot right in the middle and that that bit of let, let's curiously explore this together what a lovely phrase and i've got a few notes for my next workshop here so, yeah, <laughs> fantastic <laughs> uh, ian just coming back to individuals as well bre breaking it out so we talked a little bit really usefully there about teams and organizations and creating communities of inquiry which was one of the things i did want to say how can we replicate that and you got that with no hierarchy but as individuals the, the idea that individuals thinking for themselves more being curious, which again is very much at the heart of what we often talk about here, is what's the advice there just for beings out there, whether that's in their personal life or what they bring to work in where the organisations are in? Is there any sort of thing you go, look, just start here? There's a motto that unofficially has driven my work with independent thinking and also then my own work within my writing and the books and everything else I'm doing, which is do things no one does or do things everyone does in a way no one does. And for me, that's at the heart of the creativity. And for me, in terms of getting people to think for themselves, it's just to refuse to think what everybody else thinks, to think the obvious thing. To It's like using cliches in, in writing. You, mm. Why would you when there's so many other ways of expressing a, a, an idea? And I mean, I've taught creativity to all sorts of people over the years, not just in education. I've taught creativity to people within the tax office, tax offices, to prisoners, 
in maximum security prisons, all sorts of people. And there's all sorts of ways that you can get people to be creative, all sorts of little tips and techniques and ideas and games you can play. And they, wow, I am creative. But then you realize, well, it sort of dawned on me a few years ago that there's a starting point before the creativity, which is the word I mentioned just now, refusal. You've got to say, I'm not going to do it that way. I don't know how I'm going to do it. But that refusal creates a gap, a space in the universe into which either cliches and obvious things can fall in, or you can say, no, I'm not going to do it the way that everybody else is doing it. So that allows a space that new things can come into. They might not work. They might work. You don't know yet. It doesn't matter. The starting point is saying, I'm not going to do it that way. How am I going to do it? And then that second question is where the creativity comes in. But you've got to refuse first. This is great. And again, I'm just curious as to, is that why organizations sometimes struggle with this because there's an absolute fear that a gap opens up like oh god we've got a gap is do you know what i mean there's there is a fear for individuals teams etc organizations to, to become anxious about being curious or opening up a gap to explore because i don't know they're too too busy that's not efficient we've got to crack on we've got stuff to do and the, the pace of things stops them stopping refusing and opening up a gap to explore I might not capture that quite right, but can you get the sentiment? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm almost as bad you're, as Simon. Yeah, Simon. Yeah, Simon, explain it. Calling. Explain it better. Explain it better, but in more words. <laughs> um, yeah, I hadn't thought about it from a business point of view, but yeah, yeah that, that there is that sort of relentlessness. We need to be. We need to be constantly innovating. We need to be constantly yeah. talking about what we do, and I think that space of just sitting and being with an issue, being with a problem. Trusting our, this is one of the things Mr. Dobbins talked about all those years ago, the subconscious <laughs> or the superconscious mind that you can just, and, and David Ogilvy, the advertiser talks about this. You know, you, you fill your brain with the stuff, with the information, with the facts, with the knowledge, with the challenge, and then take a walk. Or he used to say, take a bath or drink a, he used to say, drink a bottle of claret. The better the claret, the better the ideas that will come out. <laughs> so, so just spending that time. I mean, I go out for, if I need to, come up with an idea the last thing i'll do is sit and think about think about the issue i'll go for a run go for a walk sit in the car or whatever make sure i've got you know a way of capturing the ideas when, when they come so not thinking is one of the best things we can do to improve our thinking yeah i love it now maybe linking to that but we wanted to speak about what what are thunks we've, we've mentioned it a bunch of times what's a yeah. thunk and because i think this underpins so much of what you talk about it's become my thing i suppose which is fine. There are worse things to, to have attached to you. So I was doing right from my first teaching job, I was doing this philosophy for children. I'd seen a program on the BBC years ago called Philosophy for Four-Year-Olds or Philosophy for Five-Year-Olds. And it talked about the P4C program, as it's called. And they had like a leafy suburb in New Hampshire. And then they had a more sort of challenging part in New York, I think it was. And how these teachers had brought philosophy for children into these classrooms and got children thinking and looking at the world differently. And I was thinking, remember thinking at the time, if ever I go into teaching, which I don't want to do, but if ever I did, I'd love to do P4C, love to do philosophy because it looks great. And then when I ended up teaching, it was like, okay, let's do this philosophy for children stuff. And that became a, not the, the sole part of what I was doing with independent thinking, but a big part. And then I ended up getting a, a job quite early on to teach, to sort of light the blue touch paper on thinking skills across schools in Northamptonshire in the middle of England. So I, was, I would be going into schools, primary, infant, junior, uh, secondary, special schools, the PRU, the pupil referral unit, working either directly with the kids or with just, with just with the teachers to show them what philosophy for children could do. Now, to do P4C properly, you have to have a resource. You have to plan it. 
And I could, I had the choice of spending all night the night before planning, photocopying, getting the resources, sorting it all out, or not doing that. And lazy teaching is a big thing that I recommend. Lazy teaching, as in, what's the least amount of effort you can put in to get the most amount of benefit out? <laughs> Which is a, a very rational way of working and, and, and a natural way of working. We don't want to expend unnecessary energy. And what came into my head was just these little questions that I could sometimes they just came to me on the way to the school that I could just sort of throw at a group of kids sitting in a circle. And I can't even remember when they started be, being called thunks, but that's, that's what I ended up calling them. And a question could be something like, is it right to bully a bully? Or if you go into a shop and read a newspaper or a comic all the way through and then put it back and then walk out without paying, is that stealing? Or is a broken down car parked? So these are all examples of, of thunks. So the answer is yes, no, yes and no, neither yes nor no, or something else altogether. When you've got an answer, it's a dead end to your thinking. This is the answer. As soon as yeah. you've got questions without answers, all you've got is a thinking. So then the thinking just goes off on its own, especially done in that Socratic way with the, with the community of inquiry. And the Socratic dialogue, as it's called, you don't say yes or no, well, that's a good answer. You just constantly come back to them with the questions. Why do you think that? What if you say this, but what if it was that? So you're constantly chasing them down these, these avenues of thinking rather than letting them settle with, yeah, this is the answer. I think this is, yes, it's this or no, it's that. And the children who, and adults as well, who are most frustrated by a thunk, which doesn't have a settled answer, are the, the really academic kids. They're the ones who'll come up to them at the end of a thunk session and go, well, what is the answer then? So what is it? Can you wash a hole? Um, uh, is a pregnant woman, is a pregnant woman two people? You know, can a pregnant woman ever be alone? Uh, should you say thank you to a robot waiter? Is there more future or part? I remember um, putting the question. We, we, we the, did that the other week on our show, that question. John which, which asked one? me that. That, can you. Should, should, should you say thank you to a waiter? robot waiter? Yeah. Ah, yeah. yeah. No, we, don't worry, we credited you for it. So, yeah. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> the, the Is There More Future or Past one? I remember speaking to this, and this was being filmed for some TV program that we were involved in years ago, this very academic, successful girl. And it was like, is there more future or past? And she was saying, I don't know. I'm saying, I, I know you don't know. Nobody knows, but tell me what you think. She's going, but I don't know. I'm not asking you about knowing and knowledge. I'm asking you about thinking. Tell me what you think. And she was unable to process a question that didn't involve knowing, but that did involve thinking, which I thought was, and she was, you know, a success of the system, which I thought was quite telling, getting kids to think, not just to know, and that there's a distinction between thinking and knowing. Okay, it's time for another thought experiment. And this is called the Thunk Tank which builds on the wonderful uh, work which you, you write about. So this comes from uh, one of John's children. If you kill a murderer, has the number of murderers in the world gone down? Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll have that. Yeah, thank you. I will credit it. No, that's nice. So that, question- just, to, just to put that in the context in there, that's my 14-year-old son. That, that was the one he came up with. And I thought... Oh, okay, yeah. That, he's he's got the idea here. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much. I love that because immediately your brain goes in two different directions because it's like, <laughs> has it gone down or has it gone up? And it's yes and both. And it depends which country you're in. Because if you're oh, in a yes, country okay. with cap- yeah. capital punishment, then the person who pulls the switch or whatever it is is not the, is not a murderer. But in other countries, but then that's just their legal definition. There are people within those countries who would still argue that they are the murderers. So. 
I love it. Yeah. That's really. I commend your fourteen-year-old. So he can be, take the thunk's baton into the into the future. Oh, I love it. Well, uh, well, I have to say. So I told them I were coming on with yourself, and we've played thunks in our family over the years, and they were genuinely excited. So my yeah, son lovely. said, "Can you share that one?" Here's my daughter's one. She's younger. She, okay. She said, "If you put a bagel in a forest, is it still a bagel?" <laughs> there you go it's out there she'll be chuffed a bit oh yeah i love that one it's still a bagel is it it's something it's like if you, yeah if you put a bagel in a in a block of plastic is it still a bagel is it or is if it, the thing it's the thing that it's designed to if you can't do the thing that it's designed for does it make it not what it I is i mean actually actually yeah. i was laughing at it but actually think about it it's not a bagel it's a bagel in a forest now yeah isn't it Right? Yeah, as yeah. opposed to a, a bagel. bagel in a somewhere in a cafe. else. It's a yeah. It's, it's the location has given it a new a new form. In effect, the location, time, and space. There we go. But assuming the forest that, is assuming the forest is empty, which is which they tend to be when these trees fall. It, it, <laughs> it's there's nobody there to make it to bring out its, its bagelness by eating it because that's the purpose of the bagel. So you you could what if it's a bagel a bagel forest. From like maybe Alice in Wonderland, forest of bagels, and you just leap through yeah. and munch a little bit. You go, oh, that one's nice. It's got jam and cream cheese. Ian, Ooh, a bit of salmon and dill. Ian, yeah. Ian, what's the answer? Give us the answer, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> I, need, I got, I've got to know. I can't go to sleep tonight. No, that, with that one hanging open. Uh, <laughs> go on, right, Simon. Jo- <laughs> one, one jo- oh, you, you do one. You do this one. You do this one. Okay. Yeah. So uh, next one is: Is Liz a truss? <laughs> and, and here's a follow-up for you: Is Jeremy a hunt? <laughs> the, the, sometimes being individual, unique creatures is is dangerous. When you're then in charge of the country, thinking for yourself yeah, sometimes is uh, <laughs> can lead to all sorts of bloody things. Or maybe it's not. Maybe ideologically, is not thinking for yourself. I don't know. But um, uh, yeah. Nobody will have heard of these people in a year's time. You're okay. This podcast is <laughs> uh, t- <laughs> yeah, going out in a few weeks' time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who? Now, just quickly running through it, uh, some of your the thunks that we love. And so we won't ask you to ask a question, but just is there more future than past? If we borrow every single book from a library, is it still a library? <laughs> Would you play the lottery if there was more chance of winning but also of losing everything? And this is one of my favourites. Does a dog know it's a dog? There you go. Does a dog know it's a and, dog? I think every one of those things, like, there's, there's somewhere that I've been travelling or seen something. They've all been stimulated by some experience in my life, which is back to capturing the sparks oh. again. It's like suddenly you, you start to ask questions of the world yeah. differently. Yeah, it's quite addictive to yeah. think of them. Yeah, 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 and yeah. That, with your head. And that is time in the thunk tank. Ah, very good. Thank you. Okay, we're going to wrap up with a rapid fire round. We'll see how that goes. So, rapidly and on fire, what's one thing that you couldn't do without in your life right at this moment? Passport. What's your favourite thunk? 
I think it's the is a broken down car parked because it's one I've used around the world and it just never fails to make people's brains hurt. We are building the occupational philosophers, many guesto. What one thing of all your learning do you think that should be included? Uh, not to use bad puns in titles. A more serious answer than Maniguesto or whatever it is. It's the do things everyone does. Sorry, do things no one does or do things everyone does in a way no one does. I think that is at the heart of it. All right. Is there a book we should be reading? You should always be reading a book. In terms of mine, I think given what's going to go on, and we've already talked about 2023 following on from 2022, the working class book, because there is so much in there about Children dealing with poverty and how we can support and help them. And that's only going to get worse. So, yeah, get a big cup of coffee and sit down with the working class book. All right. And now take yourself forward 50 years. We're in the, the later the later years of your life. You're uh, taken to your uh, very happy retirement home. You're introduced and they say, here's Ian. What, how would they introduce you to the rest of the guests? Here's Ian. He. Here's Ian. Don't talk to him. I think that's, that's <laughs> what I would quite like. <laughs> and, don't, and don't ask me any questions. <laughs> I'm done. Thank God. Alone. Yeah. <laughs> Leave him alone. <laughs> Tired. 107. Uh, I'm alone. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks, Ian. What are you up to next? We, we've got another quite a few books coming through the pipeline. We've got one called Square Pegs which is how we can help schools deal with those kids who just aren't quite fitting in as opposed to just throwing them out, kicking them out or making them feel bad or feel wrong or feel deficient. So the many ways that schools can support the square pegs in the round holes, I'm quite proud. That's another big, thick compilation book. So I'm quite yeah. proud of that one. There's another one coming through called Tiny Voices. There's a lady called Taria Bono who has got a podcast where she just finds the, mm. the little voices, the tiny voices, and gives them a, a way of talking and connecting. And we've got a compilation book with, I can't remember how many, 30, 40 of her little tiny voices, which again, I've edited and brought together. And just so proud that you can give people this platform that they can be then proud of. So there's, there's a number of books sort of working their way through the system. Probably the thing that I'm most excited about is my daughter's getting married in Melbourne on the 28th of December. And I get to spend all of December in Australia with, with the family there. Yeah, so that's what I'm nice most work, excited about. Nice work. Yeah. Ah, very, very cool. Very cool. All right. Now, where can we find you, connect with you, buy you, uh, full strength or virtual drinks? How can people find you? <laughs> oh, both both are good. Um, <laughs> uh, independentthinking.com. I'm on there. There's lots of sort of contact forms and things. You can see my profile on there, all the other work. At ITL Worldwide on Twitter. I tend to handle most of the Twitter stuff. So you can reach out that way. I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn or the Instagram, all the usual sort of stuff. Or you could, if you, if anybody sees this or hears this, sorry, wants to email me directly to complain or, or anything. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> Ian at independentthinking.co.uk. Happy to be, to be approached in that way. It only remains to say, as you might imagine, Ian, thank you. Thank you so much for spending time with us, playing with us, providing some of your wonderful thoughts, your independent thoughts. And, uh, the ideas around education, there's plenty to chew on there. And it looks like the, the work you've been doing is having a, a really massive and positive effect. So thank you. Yeah.
Now, just before you go, there's a few themes here where I think we're, we've, we've trod similar paths in many ways. Uh, John and I both spent a big chunk of time in South America. So, uh, not, didn't live there, but we spent a lot of time there. John and I both walked on hot coals at a Tony Robbins <laughs> event. And I have that red book, like the dare to dream or something. I like, I found it the other day. And here's the funny thing. I was with John when I did it. Part of me wanted to look in it and go, Oh, that's cool. Part of me didn't want to because I might be disappointed when I wrote. So. <laughs> <laughs> Tensions. I know the church you're speaking about in Ipswich. My wife's family live about 10 minutes outside Ipswich, just on the border of Essex and uh, Suffolk in a little village. And earlier on in my teaching career, I taught German at a school in Harwich with no knowledge oh. of German whatsoever. So look, there you go. I don't know whether... <laughs> They're just happy that someone turned up every day. So... Uh... <laughs> But what John was meaning to say, oh, just thanks so much. Like, yeah, we learned so much and, my, you know, my head is flying and there's so much stuff I just think I can use all of this stuff. It's so inspirational for, you know, I guess the work John and I both do, but also for our listeners, what a treat. So, look, thanks so much. Uh, love the glasses. I've taken a little screenshot. I'm going to share that if you're okay with it. Because oh. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a very cool. Uh, you look like sort of a, a very hip, cool DJ and I'll I take say that. that in only the very positive way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I would uh, finally add, uh, Ian, you've made our brains hurt in a good way. Perfect. <laughs> Woo, John, far out, man. What a show. Right. As always, your brain's hurting. My brain <laughs> is pro- proper. <laughs> it really is. Now, you can't really see this, but John has almost got an afro <laughs> as this show has started. Like, your hair is like, it's like, yeah. you look I, like I, you're in a I look like, 80s uh, rock band now. Well, I was going to say, I, I suddenly caught myself there. I look like, uh, who's the, the <laughs> who's the guy out of Back to the Future? Marty! <laughs> <laughs> Doc, Doc. Doc, I was that's say, it. Doc, Ma- Doc Martin. That's not him, but you know the one, yeah. <laughs> that's it. I do. It's not, it's not a good look. Right. So, so much to choose from. I'm just going to go to the teams and organization yeah. stuff for me. I thought that thing about teams being prepared to sit with a problem, be with a problem, open up a gap between knowing and not knowing, and then being comfortable to obviously explore that gap together as they seek to solve complex problems together in a collaborative way. So, And I think that that chimes with my experiences that pressure to get stuff done means they don't often do that mm. so anything you can do to allow them space to to sit in that gap uh, the better so that was really interesting for me and then the idea of communities of inquiry which he saw yeah. through the work through philosophy for children and the idea there that as they work where you have no hierarchy, so even if there is a leader, inverted commas, you come together and sit in a circle, which is always that wonderful egalitarian type of arrangement. Everyone has a voice and you get everyone's contribution. So you have that diversity of thought. So set those up, no hierarchy, get the diversity of thought because that will make the difference to how your organisation improves and innovates and succeeds over, over time. So that's yeah, me. Lot, it sort of builds on, yeah, one of those ones I have. Let's curiously explore this together. Mm. So that I, well, we're not sure what the answer is. And look, there's a couple of things. And I think this is at the 
the heart of everything. Let's let's we um, the need answers now mm. because we want to tick stuff off. We just have to sit in and say it's a big problem and we don't know the answer yet, which is why we're here curiously exploring it uh, together. Now, I really love this concept of refusal. I don't know how I'm going to solve it, but that's the way I'm not going to do it. So just refuse. I'm not going. I think what a great reframe, isn't it? Like mm. to think about that. I thought it was really cool. I'm going to use uh, that, obviously with credit uh, in. I really like this one around the deathbed test. Like if I'm on my deathbed, it is an opportunity I should have taken. What a great <laughs> way to look at things. And probably the um, that one just around how we test intelligence. Back to that exam systems needs to change. Mm. Often we focus on the maybe often here sort of oh, the teaching needs to change, but really it's the what comes at the end of it, that exam, like is this in the exam question? Do I need to listen to show you that I've – yeah. So, wow, but how, how do you even get it down to three? But, the, yeah, what a great, great, great show. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Again, I know we say it every time, but it would be nice to get Ian back at some future point just to see how his, <laughs> yeah. uh, his mission is going because he's absolutely changing the way you think about education and sits alongside people like Sir Ken Robinson. Yeah, yeah, and really I think something we've been it. so passionate to explore. That's a great spot to start, and hopefully we'll get some more people speaking in this space as well. So, John, that's us. Thank you for hanging around because I know this has been a longer show, but I think the the content has been Ian's just filled that with uh, golden droplets of uh, of thunking. Yeah, and if your brain's not hurting, go back and listen to it all again until it does. <laughs> We'll go right back to the beginning of our catalogue. <laughs> That'll really <laughs> make you brain Episode one. <laughs> so, look, as always, tell your friends, check us out, Occupational Philosophers, subscribe, give us a rating, all those funky things which no one ever, ever does. And, John, as always, stay curious, make stuff, play more, have fun, and date life. Now, I'm just thinking about this Mr. Dobbins. He popped up a, a little bit. For me, sounds like he might have been from the uh, the Magic Roundabout. Do you remember, yeah, I think you it was remember from, that show? Or? It could have been from Ian's Imagination, the amazing Mr. Dobbins and his positive psychology unicorn. Riding on the HR puffins. <laughs>